Now we've just finished a series on Romans, uh, and coming back to the series now that uh, we started at the beginning of the year uh, on John's Gospel. Uh, and in our earlier series, we saw that John's Gospel was written by the Apostle John, uh, one of the twelve apostles of Jesus. And you can divide John's Gospel, not dividing John, but dividing John's Gospel, into two parts. Uh, chapters 1 to 11 are called the Book of Signs, and the chapters 12 to 21 are called the Book of Glory. And in chapter 1 to 11, chapters 1 to 11, John records seven signs that Jesus performed, which points to who he is. And then he records lots of dialogue and discussion and debate and teaching that come as a result of those signs, and we'll see one of those today. In chapters 12 to 21, they are the lead up and account of Jesus' death and resurrection where he reveals his glory. And the climax of the book is in chapter 20, verse 28. Come with me, chapter 20, verse 28, keeping your bookmarks in chapter 5. Chapter 20, verse 28. The context is, Jesus, the risen Jesus, has appeared to his disciples, but Thomas was not among them. And then, later on, Thomas hears from the other disciples that Jesus was raised, but he refuses to believe them, until Jesus comes and appears to him, and then when Jesus speaks to him, Thomas makes a great profession of faith. That is the punchline, really, of the whole book. Chapter 20, verse 28. Thomas says, answers him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. That is what the whole book is going towards. And, then, and the whole book is helping us come to that point as well. Where we can say to Jesus, My Lord and my God. And uh, uh, Jesus says to him, in the very next verse he says, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And once we've reached that point, then John tells us why he wrote this gospel. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Uh, so John wants us, his readers, the Holy Spirit wants us, his readers, to know the signs, especially the definitive sign of the resurrection, and through the witness of John, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He wants us to be the blessed ones, the ones who don't actually see and yet, through the apostolic testimony, believe. And so John tells us about who Jesus is, what he did, what he said, all those things. He doesn't tell us everything. Verse 30 says he did many other signs. He doesn't need to. He chooses the ones that he thinks is going to, going to um, how do I say, paint the picture for us. That help us to see who Jesus is, so we can believe in him and have eternal life. Now, in the passage we're looking at this evening, Jesus performs one of these signs. And as we see the sign and the controversy that resulted, we're going to be able to see even more clearly who Jesus is and what he came to do. John wants us to see that he is the Son of God and believe. But before we do that, let's remember briefly what was in the first four chapters of John, just so we've got it in this context. Remember the first part of John chapter 1, we saw the Word, or the light, or the Son, was God with God. 
And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He's God with God, revealing God to us. He's the perfect revelation of God. And then the second half of chapter 1, we saw that John the Baptist was sent by God to prepare the way for his coming. We saw how some of John's disciples actually left him as a result to follow Jesus when he declared that, Jesus, behold, look, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in chapter 2, we saw the visit of Jesus and the disciples to the wedding in Cana of Galilee and how Jesus turned the water into wine when the wine ran out, showing that he is a true bridegroom. That's the first sign that he did in that place. And then we saw him clearing the temple and disputing with the Jews about that. And we saw his claim to be the true temple, the place where we really meet God. And then in chapter 3, we saw his conversation with Nicodemus. He says, you have to be born again if you enter the kingdom, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, but you can't do it. And only the Holy Spirit can give you new birth. We also saw the great promise of John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then in the second half of chapter 3, we saw Jesus was getting more popular than John the Baptist, but John was okay about it, because his job was to prepare the way, and now Jesus must become greater, and he must become less. Yet at the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus is the one who leaves Judea, and he heads up north. And on the way, he passes through Samaria, and has this wonderful conversation with a woman at the well, where he offers her living water, which we later discover stands for the Spirit, whom he would give, and the result is many Samaritans believed in Jesus and came to worship God in spirit and in truth. And at the end of chapter 4, Jesus healed a boy from a distance and the royal official came to believe in him. Not just to believe in sign, but believe in him. And on our way through, we saw many things about who Jesus is. We saw he's the temple, he's the prophet, he's the messiah, He's the fount of living water. He's the Word made flesh. He is Yahweh God Himself. He's the Savior of the world. But there's more to learn about the identity of Jesus and how He relates to the Father. And that is what we discover in today's passage. The setting, John tells us in verse 1, was the feast of the Jews. And Jesus is in Jerusalem for the feast. He goes up to Jerusalem for the feast. Now, John doesn't tell us what the feast is, so which means that it's not important enough to get to the point of the passage. What is important is that Jesus is in Jerusalem. And specifically, he's in Jerusalem where there are a lot of sick people. Verse 2, Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roof colonnades where they lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. You want to see what it looks like? Well, I thought you might, so I googled Bethesda pool and got this. Coming up on the screen. Okay, well, that's not the Bethesda pool, huh? Um, actually, up until the 19th century, there was no evidence outside John's Gospel for the existence of the pool. Uh, and so people often said that John made it up. Uh, however, more recent archaeology, uh, as more, well as more recently discovered Hebrew scrolls, have, have shown that John to be accurate, which is hardly surprising. Uh, the Bethesda pool was located in the northeast corner of the city, so, look on that side, you see, there's the city of Jerusalem there. Uh, you see, 
Costume says it has five roofed colonnades. What's a colonnade? Well, in classical architecture, a colonnade is a long sequence of columns joined at the top. Right? Uh, it can be freestanding or it can be part of a building. So if it's part of a building, it's it, building the building, it's freestanding. You know, in the Datta Ramadeka over there, there's, there's one, right? Uh, where there's, it's freestanding, look, got these columns, and joined it at the top, we think, what's it there for? Uh, but anyway. Right. Now, uh, the Israeli museum has made a model of the pool uh, on the next screen. Uh, there you can see it better on this side. Uh, and and uh, in those colonnades, in the shade under there, there was all these invalids, people who, who can't do anything. Right? Blind, lame, paralyzed. We're not sure why they're there. Maybe they believed in the healing powers of the waters. And you know, when copies were made of John's Gospel, some of the scribes added a little bit to explain this. You can find the added bits in the footnotes. Right? If you look at our footnotes, um, at the end of verse um, 3, you see a little footnote 5? You go right down to the bottom, it says, Some manuscripts, uh, sorry, some manuscripts insert wholly or in part, Waiting for the movement of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Now we're pretty sure that that's not part of the original John's Gospel, uh, and therefore not part of God's Word, uh, because all the early copies of John's Gospel don't have it. Right? It appears later on. Uh, so it's not authoritative, we don't have to believe it. Uh, but it does show why some of the early scribes thought the people were there. And they put a little explanation there. Right? Uh, it may be that some of the people thought that as well. And anyway, out of all the, the sick and infirm people that were crowding in these, in these colonnades there, the focus narrows down to one of them. One man. Verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Just imagine that. 38 years. Just lying there. Whatever was wrong with him meant that he could not even put himself into the pool. He was helpless like that for 38 years. Now, in Jewish thought, one generation is 40 years. So the man has been there for nearly one whole generation. He is helpless, can't do anything. And after 38 years, I tell you, he is hopeless. What hope would there be now? Hopeless and helpless. And it's this hopeless, helpless man that Jesus chose to heal that day. Verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? It's a bit of a strange question, isn't it? Could it be that after 38 years, maybe he doesn't want to be healed? It's possible, you know. There are some people like that. Some people who wouldn't want to get better. Because, you know, their illness has become so much part of their life. That's so much part of their coping strategy. And I mean, for one thing, if people have been feeding him out of pity for the last 38 years, and if he's healed, then, well, he'll have to work, won't he? Do you want to be healed? 
Well, the invalid wants to be healed, but he can't heal himself. And in fact, he can't get to what he thinks is the source of the healing. Verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Right? Makes sense that he thinks the same thing as the scribes. Right? As far as he's concerned, he's been here for 38 years, waiting to be healed, but he can't even get himself to the water. And there's no one to do it for him. He's so helpless. Try giving him advice, huh? God helps those who help themselves. Right? I wonder what he think of that. Well, what did Jesus do for this helpless, hopeless man? Well, Jesus issued a command, verse 8. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And friends, Jesus is so powerful. His word is so powerful. His voice is so powerful that this man who was lying there for 38 years obeyed him. Verse 9, And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Jesus gave him new life. Jesus gave him a fresh start. Jesus took away his hopelessness and helplessness by doing something objective for him. By healing him. Making him walk. And when Jesus said, get up, the one who could not get up, got up. And he got up so well that he was even able to carry his bed. It was a mat made of straw, but he was still, still impressive anyway. However, things are not as straightforward as they seem. There's a little complication. And the nature of it is stated at the end of verse 9. Now, that day was the Sabbath. In the Old Testament, God gave the Sabbath day, Saturday, as a day for us to rest. He forbade people to do work on the Sabbath. That was, that was God's law in the Old Testament. But Jewish tradition had added all kinds of other laws about what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. And Jesus actually didn't like that. There was another occasion, he had a huge, huge rant of the Jews for the way they were putting tradition above Scripture. As far as he's concerned, there's a clear distinction. Scriptures must be obeyed, but the tradition of the elders, that's just tradition, human invention. God says not to work on the Sabbath with Old Testament people, but carrying a strong mat is hardly a man's normal job. And, but it did fall under the prohibition of the tradition of the elders, and so he was breaking their law. So was Jesus, really, in healing him. So, verse 10. Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Do you notice that? After 38 years of lying there doing nothing, he finally gets up, and the first thing he does is seize on by the Jews who say, You can't do that. The man explains. It's not as if he's purposely going against the tradition of the elders. He's, he's just been healed. And, and part of the healing was the command. Verse 11. That man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed 
and walk. Now, you think the Jews would be pleased and excited about Jesus being healed? Well, no, about the man being healed. They wouldn't be excited about Jesus being healed at all. But they'd be excited about the man being healed. You'd you think so, wouldn't you? You'd you, you think they'd be thankful and glorify God for, for, for having mercy upon this man who was helpless and hopeless for 38 years. You'd think they might be interested to find out who's the one who healed him. But you know what they ask him? Verse 12. Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? See, they're more interested in that, aren't they? More interested in who told you to break this law of our tradition. And you know what? The man didn't know. He didn't know who it was that healed him. Isn't that surprising? Or maybe it wasn't his fault because Jesus had quickly slipped away. Verse 13, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn and, and there, as there was a crowd in the place. But, but Jesus doesn't just heal him and leave him. Well, he does, but he comes back and does follow up now. Right? He comes back to him later, verse 14, and afterward Jesus found him in the temple. Remember the temple is just nearby? But he says to him, See you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. That sounds like it was sin that had kept him in this, in this terrible state all this time. But not every time things are bad or you're, you, you know, you've got this, 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 these terrible things happen that's because of sin. But sometimes it can be and it seems like it was for this guy. And Jesus warns him, don't sin anymore because next time will be even worse. And you know what he does? Well, he does. Now he's worked out who Jesus is, he, he betrays him to the authorities. Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. He reports Jesus. And that is why, verse 16, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. What things? Healing on the Sabbath? And he was telling the guy to carry his mat on the Sabbath. So he was doing these things for so he opposed him for these, both these reasons. Now, Jesus could have answered them both in terms of their adding tradition to the word of God as he did on other occasions, but, but he, just, he doesn't do that. In fact, he doesn't take his, the, the objection to the carrying the mat. He zooms in onto the objection of his healing on the Sabbath. And instead of arguing with them about what is work and what it isn't work, he uses the controversy to make a big theological claim. Verse 17, he answers them, My father is working until now, and I am working. My father is working until now, and I am working. You see, it's not as if God stops working every Saturday. Right? Even the rabbis knew that. Even the rabbis said, if God didn't work on the Sabbath, then the whole world would fail to exist. Of course. They had a very clever way to justify it. You want to hear? Okay. They said, on the Sabbath, in the tradition of the elders, you cannot carry something from one domain to another. 
But since the whole world is God's domain, then whatever he does is not breaking the Sabbath, you see. So it's okay for God to work on the Sabbath. Now, of course, this tradition of the elders bits all a bit rubbish now. But the point is that everybody agreed that God could work on the Sabbath. And then what does Jesus say? My Father is working until now, and I am working. His justification for working on the Sabbath is His Father works on the Sabbath. But God can work on the Sabbath without breaking the law, precisely because what? Because He is God. And what does Jesus think? Who does he think he is? Verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. See, if Jesus is equal with God, then whatever the Father does, he can do. The Father can work on the Sabbath, then Jesus can work on the Sabbath. And that's not against the Father, no. It's, he's the Son of the Father. He does it because that is what the Father does. Verse 19, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the, that the Son does likewise. You see that? He, he does whatever he sees the Father do. Jesus is the Father's Son. Now, we are used to talking about Jesus being the Son of God in the sense that Jesus is the King. Yeah? Because God's promise to King David was that his sons, his kingly descendants uh, would be God's sons. And then those sons were pointing forward to to Jesus, who is the true Son, who is the true King. But you see, and so therefore when we talk about Jesus being the Son of God, often we think about the fact that, that He is the King. He is the true Son of David and the Son of God. But the reason the king of, kings of Israel were called sons of God is because they are pointing forward to the true King, who is the true Son, who has been the capital S Son of the Father, for all eternity. And so when we say Jesus is the Son of God, yes, we are saying that He is the King, but we're actually saying a whole lot more than that as well. He is not just the Son of God in terms of being the King, the rule, but He is the Son, He is the eternal Son of the Father. And this eternal Son, this Son, He does whatever the Father does. So in ancient times, the sons followed their father Allah in whatever they do. Now, if your father was a carpenter, then you'd be a carpenter. And being your father's son would mean you're the father's apprentice. The father would teach you everything about carpentry. Right? From when you're born, he'll show you everything, train you how to do it as well, so you learn from him, and in the end, you're, you're like him. Jesus says in verse 19 again, he says, I Truly I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. This Father shows him everything. He doesn't hide anything from the Son. 
He shows him everything. Because he loves him. And so everything that the Father does, the Son does as well. Now we're going to be thinking hard about the Trinity in our Doctrine Weekend in September. So make sure you keep that free. But as we get ready for that, here's the passage that shows us, introduces us to some of those things that we're going to be dealing with. Do you see, the Son is different from the Father, and the Father is different from the Son? Yeah? They're not the same, are they? Right? The roles are different. The Father shows the Son what He's doing. The Son does what the Father does. You cannot make the Son into the Father or the Father into the Son. And yet, if the Son does everything the Father does, then the Son is equal to the Father. He is God. Everything that applies to the Father applies to the Son. Except, of course, the things within the Father-Son relationship that make the Father the Father and the Son the Son. And one of those things being the dependency of the Son upon the Father. And this Father-Son relationship is characterized by love. And so there's no sense of jealousy or rivalry because, because the Father loves the Son and shows Him everything. Whatever the Father does, the Son does like And it's not just healing people. Verse 20 continues. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Now what could be greater than healing a man who had been helpless and hopeless for 38 years? What could be greater? Well, maybe raising the dead? That's, that's greater, isn't it? Well, verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. In the Old Testament, the Father is the one who can raise the dead. And Jesus says, the Son, the Son does it as well. In fact, He gives life to whom He will. He gives life to anyone He chooses. There's so many sick people at the Bethesda pool, but Jesus chooses that man to heal. Jesus gives life to whom he chooses. And at this point, well, at this point we don't quite know yet what Jesus is talking about. Is he talking about that he can give new life from death in sin? Is he talking about that he will raise people from death on the last day? What's talking about resurrection? Well, don't yet laugh. The hope us keep reading. But we know that the prerogative to give life is a prerogative of God and is shared with the Son. And we know the power to give life belongs to the Son. And then we are told that it is because the power of judgment has been given to the Son. Verse 22. The Father judges no one. Actually, there's a word before, the word for uh, is dropped out of the translation. There should be a for at the beginning of verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. You see the logic? The Father has given judgment to the Son, which means he's given the power of life and death to the Son, because death is a function of judgment. Uh, and so the Son gives life to those whom He will. And the reason He's done that, verse 23, is that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That's the Father's goal. The Father wants everyone to honor the Son like they honor the Father. See, friends, Jesus is not just a representative of God. He is sent by the Father 
But he is equal to the Father. And so the Father wants him to be honored in the same way as he is honored. He wants him to be given the same glory, the same value, the same esteem, the same worship. That is the Father's goal, that all may honor the Son. And whoever does not honor the Son, Jesus says in verse 23, does not honor the Father who sent him. You can't say, I worship the God of the Bible, but Jesus is just a prophet. If you claim that Jesus is just a prophet, you are dishonoring the Father, not worshipping Him. The Father shares everything with the Son. All His work, all His glory, all His honor, all His divinity. That is the Father's will, and that has been the case for all eternity. The Son does what the Father does. The Son acts according to the Father's will. He perfectly, definitively reveals the Father. And He shares completely in the Father's glory. If you do not want to worship Jesus, you cannot be worshipping the Father. A few minutes ago we saw the Son gives life to whomever He wills because He is a judge and we were wondering... Which way does the Son give life? Actually, there's two ways. The first one is in verse 24. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes, believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. If you hear the word of Jesus and believe, then you have eternal life. That is something that is true right now. Jesus gives life to those who hear his word and believe. You don't come to judgment because you have already passed from death to life. And we know now that the reason that Jesus could say that is that he was going to take the judgment for us on the cross. We know now that when we believe in Jesus, we're united with him spiritually by faith, that his death has become our death, that his new life is our new life, that his righteousness is our righteousness, and we do not come to the judgment because we are in him. We have passed from death to life. Jesus gives us that new life. Remember how hopeless and helpless the man in the pool was? No power to save himself? Or even to help himself get healed? And remember how Jesus healed him with a word? Well, well, that is a picture of what Jesus does for us. We were even more helpless and hopeless than that man. We were sinners under the sentence of death, under the wrath of a holy God. And there was nothing, nothing, nothing we could do to save ourselves. In fact, even the good things we tried to do was tainted with sin because we were doing them out of self-interest rather than honoring God. And nothing we could do could undo the wrongs we've done in the past. And we continue to sin, we continue to, to fail to honor God properly with the glory that He deserves. We weren't just sick, we were dead in our sin. With no relationship to God except for being under His judgment. We could never have saved ourselves. And then Jesus came and spoke His gospel word to us. He commanded us to repent and believe. 
And we could never have done that ourselves. But when Jesus calls us, his word is so powerful, his voice is so powerful, that we who are dead obeyed him. For the theologians among you, the technical term for that is effectual call. If you're not a theologian, don't worry about it. And it was a miracle. Just as much as that man's healing was a miracle. Jesus gave us new life. Gave us a fresh start. Took away our hopelessness and helplessness by doing something objective for us. By saving us from death and bringing us to life. And now that we are in Him, we have an eternity. A future with Him forever. Jesus has saved. We have passed from death to life. Friends, have you heard Jesus calling you? Like that man at the pool. It may be that today you have finally heard his call. It may be that today you have finally understood that message that Jesus is both God and man. That he came to die on the cross to pay the punishment for your sins. That he rose again as Lord of all. That he has power to give eternal life to all who believe in him. Believe in Jesus, my friend. Believe in him and you will find that you have passed from death to life. And when that happens, you will honor him and therefore honor the Father who sent him. I said there were two senses in which Jesus raises the dead. And we see a hint of that in verse 25. Because in verse 25, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, the is now here bit we've already talked about, isn't it? We were dead in sin, spiritually dead, heard the voice of Jesus, the effectual call through the gospel, and we who heard came to life. That's time is now here. But there's also a part that's in the future. Time is coming. An hour is coming. And if we read on down to verse 28, we would see this hour being described there as an hour when those who are in the tombs hear his voice and come out for resurrection. So we see that the future bit of what is described here, Jesus giving you life, is something that will happen at the end. It's about the resurrection at the end of the age. But before we come to that, Jesus has given us a couple of other things to consider. A couple of things that he tells us has been given to him by the Father. Verse 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. In other words, Jesus, like the Father, is self-existent. You see, for all of us, our life depends on God, isn't it? Everything that exists depends on God. But God is not dependent on anything outside of himself. We are all dependent on things outside of ourselves. God is not dependent on anything outside of himself. That is why you can ask, who made the world? That is a good question. But you cannot ask, who made God? That's a stupid question. It doesn't make sense, because God is, by definition, self-existent. 
And as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. The, the Son is self-existent. He is divine. He is God. He is not created. He has life in himself. And yet that life in himself is granted by the Father. So there is a relationship there between the Father and the Son where the Father grants life in himself to the Son, but it's not a created thing. It's, well, theologians among you say, eternally begotten, but don't worry about it. Say, look, a life in itself is granted by the Father. As an old commentator put it, he put it this way, he said, both the Father and the Son have the same life. Both have it in themselves. Both in the same degree. As one, so the other. But only with this difference. The Father from all eternity giveth it, and the Son from all eternity receiveth it. Now you can tell us the old one, huh? Because of the, uh, the uh, right? What is he saying? Both have life in itself, but the Son's life in himself comes from the Father. Now, since Jesus is self-existent, since Jesus has life in himself, since he is the author of life, He's the one who, who can give life to others. He's the one who can raise the dead and give them life. Life is, life is his to give. And not only, Jesus, not only is Jesus the author of life, God has appointed him as the judge. Of verse 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. The son of man, you know, he's, it comes from Daniel 7 in the Old Testament. A human one who rules over the earth. And people from every tribe and language and nation are to serve him, to worship him. This human one, he is distinct from the ancient of days, God the Father, and yet shares in his kingdom and his glory. He's human, yet he's divine. And because Jesus is the Son of Man, because Jesus is the one that God has set as King over all His kingdom, He has been given the authority to judge. And so His authority is to give life. His authority is to judge. Put those things together. And that shows what happens in that hour that is coming. Verse 28. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So the hour that is coming is that final resurrection, and in that hour, in that last day, Jesus will speak again His powerful word. And this time, everyone will rise from physical death. The tombs will be opened, the dead will be raised. If you thought that releasing one invalid from being helpless for 38 years was impressive, you ain't seen nothing yet. The dead, they can do nothing for themselves. They can't raise themselves from the dead any more than the invalid could heal himself or we could save ourselves from sin. They can't help themselves with the process any more than the invalid could take himself to the pool or we could contribute to our salvation. But Jesus will once again speak his powerful word. For Jesus has life in himself. And he will raise the dead. 
But at the resurrection there is a division. Those who have done good come out of the grave to a resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. Now, how are you to understand that division? You have to understand it in its context, don't you? What is the good you have to do to escape the resurrection of judgment and enjoy the resurrection of life? Look at the context. You only have to go back four verses. As Jesus already told us in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. See, that's the good. That's the only good that can save you. It's, it's believing in Jesus. It has to be. You have to read the whole thing together harmoniously, don't you? And that's actually confirmed. The very next chapter, when people ask Jesus what works they should do to be doing the work of God, in chapter 6, verse uh, 28, and what does Jesus say? Verse 29, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Okay, this is really important for us. Because it talks about our resurrection now, in terms of our new life that we have in Christ, when Jesus speaks to us, and raises us, and gives us that new, new life. We're born again. Speaks about our resurrection in the future. When Jesus comes again. But you know, actually, when you look at the passage, you take a step back, and it's not, you know, the passage is not primarily about us, is it? Like we're there, but the passage really is about who Jesus is. It's about Jesus and the Father. And so once again, Jesus speaks about his relationship with him. Yes, Jesus is the judge on the last day. God is the Father, is the one who has given him the authority to judge. But you know what? His judgment is not independent of the Father. Verse 30, over the page. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see, Jesus judges. Jesus judges, but he judges for the Father. Because everything that the Son does is to please the Father. Isn't that correct? The Son seeks to obey the Father. The Father seeks to honor the Son. Each person in the Trinity is other person-centered. That's, that's love. And the Father and the Son are bound together in eternal love. Well, friends, as we thought about this passage together, I trust we've grown in our understanding of what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of the Father. He's equal to the Father, yet He's distinct from the Father. He does everything the Father does, yet He does it in imitation of the Father, because the Father shows Him everything. He has life in himself, yet that is given by the Father. He deserves and receives the same honor as the Father. But he always seeks the will of the Father. He is God just as much as the Father is. 
But he is not the Father. He is the Son. And he relates to the Father as the Son. And the Father's will is that all, all, should honor the Son. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us so perfectly in your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have shown him everything. You have, you have completely uh, given yourself to him. And there is nothing hidden from him. And that everything you do, he does. Because you love him. And so we thank you that because he so perfectly, perfectly images you, we can know you truly through him. We thank you that that son whom you so love, you gave to die on the cross for our redemption. And we thank you that he made that perfect sacrifice for us so that we can be forgiven. And we thank you that he has spoken to us his powerful word which has raised us from the death of sin and brought us to life in you. And that we now know you as our Father as well. Thank you, Heavenly Father. And Heavenly Father, we look forward to the day when all the dead hear the voice of the Son and those who here live. We thank you for the assurance for that day that those who have done good will have a resurrection to glory. We do not plead our own goodness, but his. And we only plead that Christ he has been good for us. And we know that we have passed from death to life only by faith in him. Heavenly Father, we pray that you help us to keep on wrestling with these things. We know that there are many things for us yet to learn about, about the Trinity. Many more things that we can learn as we go through John's Gospel. Please continue to be speaking to us. Please continue to open our minds that we might see the glories of Jesus. That we might relate rightly to him as the Son and therefore to you as the Father. And that we may um, rightly honor him as you so desire. Help us be prayed in Jesus' name. Amen.